0: Corinthians 9, if you don't have a Bible, there's one probably in the seat in front of you, uh, most of the scripture passages will also be up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 9 beginning in verse 5 this morning, 2 Corinthians 9, 5, it says this, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangement. Arrangements for this generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Paul is talking about to the church in Corinth, just to give you a quick idea, an offering that they're taking up for the saints in Jerusalem. There's, ba- uh, there's famine, there's persecution going on to the home church in Jerusalem. So Paul is encouraging some of the churches that he has started to take up an offering to send it back to uh, the church in Jerusalem. And as he does, he's saying, I've sent a couple of guys to you, Titus and some others, who are gonna help take up this offering. Now, already in this verse, you've noticed the word generous twice. As I continue to read, please notice how many times the word generous or its various forms are used in the rest of this chapter. Verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. At least seven times in this chapter, the word generous or generosity or some form of generous occurs. If you're new here to fullness, then we are studying 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians, and we've gotten to this passage, and the whole theme of 2 Corinthians is that God's power is perfected in our weakness, that it's not out of our strength that power comes, it's out of our weakness that God then steps in with his power, which is far greater than anything we could imagine, praise him, and takes things from there. He's talking about being generous. How is generosity the same as weakness? Well, it's in this way. It's, It's the idea that money does not bring security. Hello, let me say it again. Money does not bring security. Money is not that upon which we lean. When we are generous, what it does is it breaks off the spirit of greed and the spirit of idolatry that goes with money, which I got to tell you, you can just look to your left or your right, and you will see a person struggling with the idolatry of money. Why? Because we live in a culture that saturates us, saturates us with the economy, our dependence on finances, Our houses, our cars, our clothing, uh, everything about who we are as Americans in this culture at some point comes back to wealth and money. And Paul is saying, look, one of the characteristics of those who are followers of Jesus Christ is that we are a giving and a generous people. These two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, there is no, no, no getting away from this truth. God gave generously to you. He's calling you as part of his family business to be like him. We too are to be a giving and generous people. Anything that runs contrary to that, I would claim right now is unbiblical. It doesn't follow the gospel. It doesn't follow how Jesus is. Now, I understand that right away, whenever I talk about giving, there's this glaze that at times goes over people's eyes. And there's, there's also the way the devil works, which says this. You know, he's only preaching about giving because this church needs more money. Uh, and therefore, he's preaching about giving because he's trying to milk us for everything we got so that um, surely, you know, he can get a bigger house himself or, um, you know, live in a gated community or drive a nicer car or, you know, I don't know what, but the devil just lies to us. And I got to tell you, part of the problem is there's enough preaching about that junk in the church where we see preachers living lives that are unconscionable to me that I understand. I understand that that way the enemy just accuses and lies but at the same time don't don't throw it out the truth that God calls you to be generous and to be a giver now there's a lot of things you can give and a lot of different ways you can be generous but really Paul is talking here basic bottom line about money the church in Jerusalem needs help they need help and the church in Corinth was probably one of the wealthiest churches in all of Christendom at the time. And he's saying, look, God's given you. Jesus, he's given you wealth. Now let's, let's share it. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The gift that he gave was the son of his son, for God so loved that he gave. Last week, we looked at some truths about giving that hopefully you've been able to think about and contemplate this week that giving's not a punishment. It's a privilege. God God loves a cheerful giver, right? Didn't we just see that already today? Have you ever known a child that was being punished that was also being cheerful? I mean, it's it's hard to be being punished and cheerful at the same time. To be a cheerful giver, giver means that you understand that it's a privilege to give. Thank you, Lord. I get to give again today. Because giving is also not an obstacle, it's an opportunity. An opportunity for what? To share the gospel. He says, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Giving's not a burden, it's to be a blessing. Giving is not about legalism, what you have to do, it's about the act of grace that God places in your life. And it's an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. We all need to change our view of giving. Attitudes about generosity and money develop very early. One of my children used to go around to church members and say things like, Miss Cheryl, can I have a dollar? Mr. Reed, can I have a dollar? I mean, he was bold in asking for dollars. And he figured the people of fullness were generous. So I'm going to ask them for their dollars. And amazingly, Some of you gave him the dollars, which just encouraged the act for a while until you got tired of giving him your dollars. We live in a consumer culture. We take and we spend on ourselves. One of the earliest ancient Christian documents, just hang with me here for a second, It's a letter written to a man named Diognetus, and it was written somewhere, we believe, around 120 to 130 A.D. Now, if you think about it, the Apostle John probably died somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D., so this is written within 20 to 30 years after his death. And Diognetus, um, we don't really know who he was. There was a Diognetus who was the tutor to Marcus Aurelius. Anybody see Gladiator? movie? He was the king in that movie. I mean, the emperor in that movie. He, I don't recommend movies. You don't need to see it if you haven't seen it. It's a pretty good one, though. And uh, <laughs> anyway, and anyway, Marcus Aurelius was, this guy was probably the tutor. Here's, here's the issue. The question was, Diagnetus, who was not a God follower, was not a believer in God, is saying to a guy named Methodus, And by the way, Methodist is probably not his name. In Greek, that means disciple. But in some way, Dionysus is asking this guy, why is Christianity growing so fast? Who are these people? And why are these people springing up all over the empire? And in this letter, again, dated somewhere between 120 and 130, Mathedes gives an answer to Diognetus in a longer, it's called the Epistle to Diognetus, and here's what he says. Now, this is a longer quote, but listen to this early description of who Christians are to a guy who doesn't know who they are. If you were to, let me just say, this, if you're going to describe the church today, how would you describe it? If someone said, hey, tell me who Christians are. Just write me a letter. Just write it out. Tell me who Christians are, what they're all about. What would you say? Here's what Methodist chooses to say. Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by the customs which they observe. They do not inhabit cities of their own, use a particular way of speaking, nor lead a life marked out by any curiosity. The course of conduct they follow has not been devised by the speculation and deliberation of inquisitive men. They do not, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of merely human doctrines. Instead, they inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities, however things have fallen to each of them. And it is while following the customs of the natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and and admittedly striking way of life. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners." Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while while surpassing the law's by their lives they love all men and are persecuted by all they are unknown and condemned they are put to death and restored to life they are poor yet make many rich they lack everything yet they overflow in everything they are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified they are spoken ill of and yet are justified they are reviled but blessed They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are sailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is in the body, that is what Christians are in the world. What a description of the early church. Here's what Methodist um, is saying to Diognetus. Let me get, these are my conclusions that I'm drawing from this. He's saying that the early Christians in the early church, there is a complete absence of racism. Their foreign countries, whereas their homeland and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. The, the Christians were Jews, Africans, Greek, Roman, First, they're Christians. Their nationalities came second. Christianity gives you a higher loyalty than your race or your nationality. Let me say that again. I believe this firmly. Christianity gives you a higher loyalty than your race or your nationality. They no longer took their identity from who they were racially To to me, this is cutting racism down at the root. Christianity, if indeed followed, says our loyalty, our love is to our Heavenly Father. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's my belief. My belief is this, and I acknowledge I am a white man living in the American culture. But my view is this. The only hope we have is Jesus. The only hope we have to see racism in our country or in every, any other place cut down. I, I've been in places where they are tiny nations, and there's a tribe here, and there's a tribe here, and they hate each other because they're different tribes. I mean, there's no—they look the same. They, I mean, they just—racism— occurs in all forms because we are we're steeped in sin we think naturally we're better but christianity and the early church characterized this there was a complete absence of racism it is a crime that the church over the last two thousand years has lost this vision to me i'm not going to preach on this one i'll come back to this someday in the future They also have a high, high view of life. It says, they do not kill the unwanted. Back then, parents had the right to kill their children if they didn't want them, especially female babies. If you wanted a baby, a male, an heir, and you had a female, I mean, for him to say, hey, they don't kill their children, that's... That is something that is distinct from their culture. Slaves were expendable. Christians, though, saw every life, no matter how unwanted or expendable, to be absolutely precious in God's sight. They had an unusual view of sex. He says they share their tables with all, but they don't share their bed with all. Now, you may be wondering what he meant by that. It's just about sex. In case you're wondering, that's just a euphemism for sex, a nice way of saying sex. You see, to the to the culture in which they were born and raised, if you were hungry, you you ate. If you were frisky, you had sex. It's just another appetite. They didn't view it as any different. It's so much so that the author is saying to this Diagnetus, hey, they... They share food, but they don't share their bed. Now, to the early church, if you do some other readings into this, they found the Christian ethic concerning sex liberating. There was something abusive and, and out, of, out of the norm about sleeping with whoever you wanted to. But if you read the early church, they found like committing to one person liberating. Does that not sound opposite of our society today? The whole idea of sexual liberation from the 60s was you can sleep with whoever you want. Let me tell you, in God's economy, that is not liberating. In fact, it's imprisoning, it's addicting. It'll it'll cause you to make choices of life that will lead you down a path that you can't very easily come back from. It was so distinct from their culture that it's included in this early document. I know I'm preaching 10 sermons here, but this is such a great document because here's the last point that was so different than their culture. They had a radical view of generosity. They shared a table with who? Everyone. I mean, it goes back to everything he's been talking about. there. Though poor, they make many rich. They have nothing, but they have plenty of everything. People could not believe how quick they were to give their money away. It so ran against their culture that the author points out generosity of the people. Gen- generosity matters. Generosity communicates that that your life is not your own. Your stuff is not your own. In fact, if you are a steward of God, if you're a part of his family, you recognize he's the owner. You're the one who manages. And over and over in the Bible it says, God gives so that you can give away. Look at the power of generosity that Paul lists in this chapter, in in chapter 9. You see, a generous giver knows God. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving to God is directly related toward our attitude about God and our trust in his faithfulness. The general idea among many Christians, and praise God, it's not, I don't, do not believe that it's the attitude of this church, but the attitude of many in Christianity is this, okay, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to spend what I need to spend to make my quality of life where I want it. And by the way, most of us live a quality of life that's well beyond what we really need. Most of our houses are bigger. Most of our cars are nicer. You you do what God directs you to do. But it might be worth asking it. How do you want me to live my life? In any case, we live according to the level of the culture around us. And then maybe what we have left over we'll give to God. So we give God our leftovers. Leftovers. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I just don't want leftovers. I remember when I was in seminary, there was one time I I lived with three other guys. and We were not really great housekeepers, and, you know, you'd cook something, you'd throw it in the fridge. I mean, there was some stuff in our fridge. I mean, there was one time I I, I just said, I'm not even washing this dish. I'm throwing the whole thing away. It had grown to that point. I didn't even know what, what, what it was anymore. I couldn't even identify what the food originally had been. But the point is this. If we recognize and know God, then we don't give God what's left over. We give God first fruit. We get God recognizing, oh man, he loved me so much, he gave to me. And there's something, you may be saying, what does it matter if I'm giving him the same amount of money here than giving him the same amount of money there? What what does it really matter? You know what matters is a recognition of your relationship with God. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue because you know God. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Our giving is a reflection of the nature of the God that we serve. A generous giver walks in faith. A generous generous giver walks in faith. Remember, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, if you want to know more about the sowing and reaping principle, I'm not going to It's one of the great principles in the Bible, but go go read uh, Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Paul elaborates on the sowing and reaping principle. But here's one of the things about sowing and reaping. I got a bag of seeds. What do I have to do with this bag of seeds in order to reap a harvest? I got to throw it out there. Now, you see, it takes faith to throw it out there. Now, some of faith is built on past experience. I've sown it. I've seen it grow up. It's, it's a harvest. But you can you imagine starting to throw It's an act of faith to throw it out there. Sowing takes faith. I'm not going to get off. I can't help it, though, for the sowing and reaping stuff. If without faith it's impossible to please God, then what you sow not in faith is going to reap not in faith. Because you only reap what you sow. Are you with me? In other words, if you say, I'm going to control this, I'm going to give right here, but it's in my control, then guess what you're going to get? A harvest of controlled return. Um, You're going to, some of us are being controlled because we're trying to control that makes any sense to you but you're reaping and one of the things about reaping is it always comes after you've sown some of us have sown some bad junk over the years and right now we're reaping bad junk because we've sown that for years and we immediately say oh I want to change my life I want to turn it around right now so we throw out a little seed and we think why why didn't things change from yesterday why, why is life not radically different? Listen, you got to wait for the harvest to come in. Don't give up. Don't get weary in well-doing. Keep pressing forward. Keep sowing seeds of faith. I could talk about relationships. I could talk about marriages. I could talk about parenting. I could talk about almost anything. This principle still applies. Keep sowing because it, it is an act of Faith. My desire is that you would reap a harvest of blessing in your life. Paul is saying here, if you want to reap blessing, you got to start sowing it. you got to start giving away, and it is an act of faith to do it. Final point, a generous giver loves people. Generous giver loves people. Look at verses 12 through 15. And there's so many other truths in this passage. It is just a great passage. Just read it, underline it. God will speak some truths to you in it. But he says, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Again, he's talking in this passage, loving God, loving people. Giving, being generous happens in this way. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God For the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. He's saying you're giving, you're being generous is what? It's a confession. It's an agreement that you believe in the good news. It's a confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Look, we give because we love God and love people. We don't give because of how it makes me look. We don't give out of our own stuff. I think you and I both would recognize that we live in a greed-saturated society. Would you agree, agree with that statement? Um, Jesus says in Luke, maybe you didn't want to agree with me that loud, I don't know. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in what? Man, it's, it's not about what you got that's really life-giving. Greed gets a hold of all of our lives. You may have read recently about um, this new game that's on the phones, the iPhones, called Pokemon Go, and, and let me just say this. I recognize that, for those of you who know what I'm about to say, I recognize that our church is a gym for Pokemon Go, and if your last name begins with R, quit gymming in our church. <laughs> that's a code. <laughs> My tilt, and or B. Because my children were looking at it two weeks ago, and they saw others in our church playing Pokemon Go during the sermon. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, do you? Pokemon Go is a game that is just, you're like, huh? He is talking in tongues? I know it now. Pokemon Go is a game that's put out by Nintendo, Nintendo Nintendo's stock doubled within two weeks of this game that goes on a phone. Doubled. Value went up to 19 billion dollars for Nintendo. Then this week it was found out Nintendo doesn't really own the game. Stock went down by 25 percent. Still way ahead of where it was, but they don't own exclusively the game. It was put out uh, in conjunction with others. I mean, this spirit of greed. First thing, you play a game. Oh, I'm addicted to this game. Hey, wait a minute. Who owns this? Let me give money to it. Let me get money back. I'm gonna this. We live in a culture of greed. We don't even, we don't even think greed is a problem. I, I've had people come to me and confess all sorts of sins. I mean, a bunch of different ones. My list is pretty long. I keep it in my desk drawer of sins confessed. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just... <laughs> I have yet to have a person come into my office and say, Pastor, I I have the sin of greed. I've never had anyone say that to me. Why? Because we don't even recognize it. It's so much a part of our culture because we compare ourselves with others out there. Right? And compared to them, I'm doing pretty good. No, you're not. It's all over you. And the way we break it is through being generous. I've read that, I read about a cartoon, a Victorian cartoon, and it's these two guys. One guy's holding a book in his hand, and the guy, another guy says to him, hey, what's that book you're reading? And the one guy says, it's a new story that Dick, that, that excuse me, I'm ruining the whole line here. Let's back up. I'm starting in the wrong key, as Mitch would say. It's a new story by that Dickens fellow about a worthy banker named Scrooge who finally degenerates into a sentimental weakling. That's the way our society views giving. Listen, we give because we love God and love each other. I don't love you just because of your money. I really don't. love you because God loves you and through him. But many people view that, oh, he likes me just because I give. I like the story I heard about two men who were marooned on a desert island. One of the guys is pacing back and forth because he was worried and afraid that he would die on that island. The other man is just laid back, relaxing, dozing, getting a good tan. The first man says, aren't you worried? The second answer is, nah, I'm not worried. I make $100,000 a week, and I tithe on what I make. My pastor's going to find me. <laughs> Too many of us at times see that relationship between the church and the This isn't about me and you. This is about us before the Lord and us loving people. And there are a ton of different ways to give. Paul is talking about a church in Corinth that's giving to another church in Jerusalem. There's ways to give. There's mission organizations to give to. There's benevolence. Now, I i am a local church guy. I do believe you should give to the local church. But there are tons of different ways you can be generous. What God calls is for you to live a life of generosity. And there's, by the way, even though he's talking about money, there's more things to give than just your money. Let me give you a quick list, and I promise this is going to be quick, a list of things you can give away to people. Some of these are harder to give away than others. Give an ear, and I don't mean by that cut off your ear, I mean listen to people. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. One of the greatest gifts you can give to someone is just listening to them. How about affection? Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's about giving affection, giving honor. Give kindness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Now think about it. Some of these things, aren't they not harder to give than money? It's easier to write a check than to give some of these things Here's one of my favorites. Give laughter. The Bible has a lot to say about laughter. I'm a firm believer in the value of laughing. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. For those of you who don't like to laugh, your bones are being crushed right now. So laugh a little bit. (laughs) Give compliments. Give compliments. A man finds joy in giving an after reply, and how good is a timely word. If you see somebody doing something, lift their spirits. Now, for some of you, you've never given a compliment before uh, to your wife or to your husband. The first time you do it, they're going to think, what does he want? You know, <laughs> okay, what's going on here? So you've got to do it long enough to say there's not something behind it other than just loving and giving compliments. Give a favor. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. Go babysit for someone. Go mow somebody's yard. Go do something to serve somebody who you know needs it. Find a friend, clean their house, and come over to my house. (laughs) give some space give some space what? there were times where Jesus just needed to get alone sometimes if you love somebody just give them some room I'm not going to be corny just let them go kind of thing but give them some room how about give a game give some fun to somebody in their life I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life. God has given him under the sun. Play some games with some friends. It's fun. Unless you're playing games in my house. Then it's, you know, winner take all. (laughs) Uh, We thought it was a good day when we finally could play a game and nobody cried. So, that's just games at the Brookings house. But for some other people, giving a game, it's it's fun. Uh, Give a smile. Even a smile. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. How about a prayer? After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Listen, if you read the book of Job and you get to this point, you realize that Job praying for these losers who have been talking to him is quite a t- task. I mean, they had been t- giving him terrible advice, just heaping stuff on him. You got free enough to pray back to them. Give a prayer. The whole sowing and reaping thing works here. Give the gospel. What greater gift than you could give than the good news of Jesus Christ? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. And many in the church are ashamed of the gospel. Otherwise, we'd be giving it away. Maybe it's we're ashamed of what the church has become because we appear so much like the world. Look, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Ultimately, people, the truth is this. Give your lives away. Over the last month, we had Jen here and Amy here. Every time they speak, I, I, it just I'm blessed, but at the same time convicted of these women who are giving their lives away in a way that I don't. I mean, it's a different calling. I recognize, but I have to stop and ask, what can I do more than what I'm doing? to break me out of this self-centered existence that I quickly fall into to give my life away. And, and ultimately, I come back to passages like this. God, make me generous in every aspect of it. Let me see again the truth that you gave everything for me so that I in turn can give it away to others. Live a life of radical generosity because when you do God's power I would say is going to be inserted into that situation and miracles are gonna occur Lord we thank you today for your blessings in our lives Lord we thank you for all you've done for us oh God we we recognize that It's in you that we live and move and have our very being. God, I ask for each and every one of us that that the chains of of greed and blindness and self-centeredness would break off of us so that we would live lives of radical generosity. Giving away what you've given to us. Not just our resources, our money, but our, our words, our time, our joy, our lives, and ultimately the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you, and we bless you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.